If you will take your copy of the ancient words and turn to the Gospel of Luke, or swipe to the Gospel of Luke, whatever you do these days. Just make sure you have a copy of the Gospel of Luke in front of you. It would be great. Luke, in the New Testament, third Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke. We're looking at uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 25 this morning. Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would open our hearts and our minds and our understanding of your truth. Speak to us, Lord. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear that we may know you more and that we may be changed by you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some of you are Netflix addicts. Maybe it's not Netflix, maybe it's Apple TV or Amazon Prime. But some of you, maybe all of you, to some degree, have spent quite a bit of time streaming that favorite show. Tempted to take a poll to see what that favorite show is, but I'll not do that. But, you know, one of the unique things about these streaming services today is that they have provided us the opportunity to watch really an entire season of a show uninterrupted. I mean, you could literally watch an entire season, if you're crazy enough, in a full day, right? I mean, you could could just binge watch whatever these days. And you know how it is, once that season ends, you can't wait till the next year when the next season comes out. And it's difficult. I mean, I remember Colin and I were watching Lost in Space, and we were figuring out the next season's like two years away, and that's coming up soon now. So it's like two years ago, but we were like, how are we going to wait two years for the next season? Well, imagine a season of your favorite show coming to an end only to find out that the next season is not until 400 years from now. Maybe we've got the trailer or some hints of what's coming next, but 400 years? And that's pretty much what we have with the Bible. The people who had returned from exile and rebuilt the city, rebuilt the temple, rebuilt the walls, resume a life back in Israel, back in the promised land. But it wouldn't be until some 400 years later that we would have the next major undertaking, the next season, if you will, the next episode, if you will, of what's taking place in God's redemptive work, at least that which is recorded for us. By the time you get to the end of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, we end with God's people back in God's city, but it wouldn't be until 400 years later or so that we hear again from the Lord about his next work, about his next part in his plan. As we open the pages of the Gospel of Luke, The 400 years of silence come to an end with the announcement of John the Baptist's birth. It's that passage I want us to look at this morning. I want to begin reading in verse 5 of Luke chapter 1. Luke writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. 
Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. You will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When his time of service had ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. As we walk through this birth announcement of John the Baptist, I want us to walk through this passage in this way. We're going to look at four sections or four particular observations that we're going to help explain and summarize this passage for us. And then we're going to draw five points of application in the end. You think that's going to be a lot? It is. We'll get it all done, I promise. Before lunch, maybe. So we're going to divide this passage into four units, kind of walk through them, helping us see what's going on. And then we're going to draw five points of application from it as we conclude our time this morning. First thing I want us to see is in the context of God bringing about his redemptive work and redemptive plan is first of all, we need to see a disappointing situation. This is the context, a disappointing situation. We see it in verses five through seven. The, the content, last week we started the gospel of Luke there in verses one through four and it was more of an introduction to, to kind of Luke's purposes of writing the gospel. So kind of why I'm doing this. And now in verse five, we really get into the content of the gospel and we're immediately introduced to a priest named Zechariah and his wife, whose name is Elizabeth. A few observations here. Zechariah is a godly priest from the division of Abijah. He's one of the 18,000 plus priests, right? We got five elders here at Redeeming Grace. There were about 18,000 priests, not exactly the equivalent anyway, but Nevertheless, you have about 18,000 priests kind of giving service to the temple, and he was one of them in a particular division. His wife Elizabeth, also of priestly blood from the daughters of Aaron. And Luke describes them both as righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. 
So get this, they both have come from a godly heritage and both are committed believers, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. And then verse seven says, but, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. So here we have a faithful, godly couple giving service to the temple, walking in the commandments and statutes of the Lord, and yet they had endured a lifetime of disappointment because they had no child. On top of their barrenness, they live in a day that was characterized by hostility and oppression because Rome was in charge. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, Herod being kind of a puppet king of Rome, so yes, they were in their country of Israel, but they were really much under oppression during this day and time. So not only had they known personal struggle, they were in the midst of a cultural difficulty as well. All this to say is that it, it sets the stage for what's about to unfold. Chronologically, you begin the New Testament right here. Matthew picks up a little later, Mark's gospel picks up much later, but Luke's gospel chronologically begins earlier because he's beginning with the birth announcement from John the Baptist before we get to Jesus. And so all of this is setting this stage about what God is about to do. So we begin here in the New Testament with an introduction to a godly elderly couple that had no children yet living under Roman oppression. And looking at their lives personally, and you consider also their lives culturally, Luke, I think, wants us to feel the weight of their dilemma. I mean, he, you, you see that just in the way he phrases what he says. He says, they're walking blamelessly, but they had no child. He, he wants you to feel that weight of sadness, that weight of disappointment there. See, it's in this context of disappointment that God is about to move amazingly. It's in the context of disappointment that God's promised plan of redemption is about to unfold. We're gonna come back to that in just a minute as we're making some application at the end of talking about how God will often use disappointment in our lives to bring about his sovereign purposes for his glory. So you have a disappointing situation that marks the context, but then we move on secondly to a timely announcement. And you see that in verses eight through 19. It's in the context of disappointment that a ray of light begins to shine in. Again, I said earlier, Zechariah is one of the some 18,000 priests in service to the temple. Part of the priestly duty required daily, twice a day, to go into the holy place to burn incense along with the burnt offering. And so twice a day, you'd have a priest go into the holy place of the temple and burn incense along with the burnt offering uh, there in the midst of the temple. And because of there was the number of priests that they had, you were only allowed to do this once in your lifetime. Like this was kind of the high mark of the priesthood of the day, getting to go into the holy place to burn incense. Like one time is all you got. We told here in the text that by lot, Zechariah was chosen on this particular day to go into the temple to burn incense. And so he goes. I think it's also significant that you see what's going on here. Verse 10 says, a whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So the backdrop to all of this 
is a backdrop of corporate worship. You have the people gathered there at the temple. You have the priest going in to offer the incense at the time. Likely this was the second time. I'm not exactly sure if this was the first or the second time of day, but it seems that the context there with the people gathered be more uh, of the case, it would be more uh, realistic that the, the majority of the people would be there in the evening time. But you have the context of corporate worship. All of this is taking place. And as Zechariah makes his way into the temple, we're told an angel of the Lord appears. Now, this wasn't part of the normal routine. And so Zechariah does what any priest confronted by an angel would do. He freaks out. He's terrified. I mean, we, we see that here. There appeared to him, verse 11, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of Enzo, and, Je- and Zechariah was troubled, and fear fell upon him. Again, we have this misunderstanding today that angels are these cute little creatures. They are not. Friends, if you were to see an angel right now, you too would freak out. You'd be terrified. They're not these little cute, plump little things with halos. They're terrifying creatures. Some way glorious creatures as well. This was not part of the normal routine. Uh, priests didn't have angelic visits on the regular when they would go into the holy place. This was a unique experience to Zechariah. So he's seized with fear, verse 12. The angel immediately responds to him and tells him several important things. I'm just going to walk through this kind of broadly. He tells him, first of all, just like most angels do when they confront a human, don't be afraid. That's kind of Listen, you're freaking out right now. You don't need to do that. Don't be afraid. Second thing that he tells Zechariah is that his prayer has been heard. His prayer had been heard. These would have been prayers we know based upon the context for a child that he and Elizabeth had no doubt prayed for countless times throughout their lifetime and they were to name this child John. Third, he says, you will have joy and gladness because of this but not just you, many will rejoice at his coming. He will be great. He will be filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit. He will turn many from the Lord. He will go before the Lord and make ready a people prepared. So this is the ministry that John the Baptist, who we'll know later as John the Baptist, will fulfill. He's, he's coming as the forerunner, as the one who would prepare the way, just like the Old Testament said would happen, he would prepare the way of the Lord. He would prepare. He would he'd make that time of preparation for the people so that when Jesus came, they would be ready to receive. We're going to be talking more about John in the coming weeks. And so we'll get more in the particulars of his ministry then. But what a day. I mean, what a day. Not only was Zechariah getting to go into the holy place. I mean, this is Instagram worthy, right? I mean, this is your one shot. that You get to go into the temple that day and burn some incense. So what a day, I mean, that's enough as it is. But he goes into the the holy place, he's confronted by an angel, and he's told after all these years later that he's eventually going to have a son. But not just any son. This son would play a pivotal role in the arrival of the Messiah. Think about that, the disappointment that they had endured for so long was now going to be turned into moments of joy and rejoicing. 
not just for them, but for countless others. Once the angel delivers this message to Zechariah, he responds with a simple question. How shall I know this? For I am old and my wife is advanced in years. He's just reminding the angel as if the angel didn't know. This is going to be difficult because we're old. Verse 19, the angel replies, well, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you. Now this is significant. The angel now identifies himself as Gabriel, and this is very important. And Luke's doing this on purpose because Luke is trying to show you the continuity between the Old and New Testaments here. He knew Zechariah would know his Bible, the Old Testament. So this is very intentional that not only an angel comes, but Gabriel in particular, because the last time we heard from Gabriel was in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, Daniel had prayed a prayer and Gabriel is sent in response to Daniel's prayer to give him a message of the, 70, or the seven weeks or the 70 weeks or whatever those, how many weeks there are there. But the point of that message that he's bringing Daniel is that indeed God was going to send his Messiah into the world in response to the prayer that Daniel prayed. And the next time we see Gabriel show up is some 400 years later here now with Zechariah. No accident. He came to Daniel to share the promise that God would send his Messiah, and now he comes to Zechariah to announce that the promise has been fulfilled or will be fulfilled very soon. God's promised deliverance would be underway very soon. Luke is showing us that as the continuity between the old and the new and how God's plan of redemption all fits together. So as God was answering Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayer for a child, he was also fulfilling his promise of salvation. So you have a timely announcement. Number three, we see a humbling rebuke very quickly here. We know that uh, Zechariah in verse 18 says, well, how shall I know this? I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Probably reminiscent of some of the scenes we've seen earlier, maybe Abraham and Sarah, for example, again. How's this going to happen? We're old. And so what happens here is Zechariah expresses some level of doubt to what he was being told. So Gabriel extends a rebuke to him in a temporal form of judgment, which results in Zechariah being made mute. He's, he's made speechless, at least until the baby would be born. It's... Even kind of a funny scene here as, as we see that unfold. Probably not funny to Zechariah. I mean, he, 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 he leaves the temple. When he came out, verse 20, he's unable to speak. So he's, he's like moving his hands around. Kind of some sign language on the, on the fly. But he remained mute. The point is made quite clear to Zechariah and to us that God is going to bring his promises to pass. And what Zechariah needed to do was just simply be quiet and watch it happen. Sometimes even godly people struggle to take God at his word. Sometimes even the most faithful of people have doubts about how God may do something in particular. Zechariah is, is, a, is a lesson for us here in that. We need to trust the Lord in his word. 
Which leads us to number four, a fulfilled promise. You see that in verses 24 and 25. Sometime later, we don't know exactly how long went by, but Elizabeth conceives, has a child. We're told for five months. We don't know exactly. There's a lot of debate as to why she kept silent for five months, but nobody knows. Just to help you out in your home groups this week, don't spend 20 minutes talking about why. All right? We don't know. There's some good explanations, but the text doesn't tell us exactly why she kept silent for five months. But the final verse here does show her true attitude about her pregnancy, and she rejoices in God's providential provision, knowing she's the object of God's favor. See, the promise that God had made long ago had endured hundreds of years of relative silence. The promise that God had made long ago endured Roman oppression. The promise that God had made now had endured the barrenness of an elderly couple. And now God's promise is coming to pass just as God said, no matter what the hindrance may seem to be. This narrative is important to us because it exposes God's work of redemption going forward just as he said, despite the years of silence, despite the years of struggle and disappointment and hardship. And alongside his overarching plan of redemption that we see unfolding here in the arrival, eventual arrival of John the Baptist, alongside of this overarching plan of redemption, we are also able to see inside the very personal lives of this elderly, godly couple. We're told here, we're taught that God does what he promises and through the most unlikely of circumstances. And as we read through this narrative, we... We get it. We see that the overarching point Luke is making is that God is faithful to his promise. He made a promise. He's going to keep it. The forerunner is going to come and the, Messiah is, the way of the Messiah is going to be prepared. But we also see through the personal lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth several, I think, helpful points of application that we can take away this morning. I just want us to kind of walk through these in the time that we have left together this morning. Five points of application. Number one. Grace doesn't exempt God's people from trouble. God's grace doesn't exempt God's people from trouble. We all know, and we all have experienced what it means to be disappointed, to be discouraged. Some of you are feeling the weight of that even today. Maybe you just come out of a season of disappointment. Maybe you're going into a season of disappointment. All of us know that. All of us have, are, or will go through those times. And one of our human tendencies, when we go through disappointing times or times of trouble or times of suffering, is that we will often equate the disappointment or the time of suffering as a direct form of God's punishment for something we must have done wrong. But that's the wrong conclusion you should draw. We must not presume upon God by either seeing our disappointments and struggles as evidence of the presence of sin or expect God to give us everything that we desire. Notice in Zechariah and Elizabeth's case, both remained faithful to the Lord and yet endured years of disappointment. 
they didn't conclude along the way, well, we must be doing something wrong because we don't have a child. They remained faithful. They continued serving. Continued honoring the Lord, keeping his commands, etc. Grace doesn't exempt God's people from trouble. There, there's this oftentimes teaching today, especially with the prosperity gospel, that if things are going wrong in your life, it must be because you don't, you don't have enough faith. You're not living right. Brothers and sisters, that is a lie from the pit of hell. If things are broken in your life, it's because we live in a broken world. We live in a world that is fallen and sinful and cursed. And yes, it may be the result of particular sin in your life, but it may be that you're just experiencing the reality of fallenness in general. And that just because you're a follower of Jesus Christ doesn't mean that you're somehow now exempt from trouble. The Bible never makes that promise. What the Bible does promise you is that he will get you home. It does promise that if you're a follower of Jesus, there's coming a day in the new heavens and new earth, praise God, that we will be home and there will be no more brokenness or disappointment or grief. But God's grace doesn't exempt God's people from trouble. Number two, God's, God must always be trusted. God must always be trusted. When we're going through a period of struggle or disappointment, we must fight hard to believe that God is still good. This is why the, 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 the gift of the church is such a blessing. That's why we need other believers in our lives so that when we're going through those seasons of disappointment and trouble, that we've got voices speaking to us, not those ones that are in our head, but like real voices speaking into our lives, reminding us of what is true. That's why community is so critical for the believer. Not just community built around things of this world, but community built around the gospel, built around truth. Listen, God's plan was in no way threatened because Herod happened to be the king and because Zechariah and Elizabeth happened to be barren. His plan was not threatened in any way. In fact, what God typically does is he, he, he seems to find delight in like taking the most impossible of circumstances and bringing about his purposes for his glory. God often works in the midst of desperate situations. Zechariah and Elizabeth had longed for a child and despite their barrenness, they continued to serve the Lord. They continued to trust the Lord. God's work in us and God's work for us is not derailed in some way by problems or disappointments. It's often actually through those problems and disappointments. We don't see it then. And maybe we don't even see it shortly after, but it's often through those disappointments and problems that we're able to see his faithfulness all the more clearly. Listen, disappointment doesn't mean God is absent. In fact, it often means he is very present, doing things we can't fathom or even know. No matter what you may be facing, no matter the disappointments that may come your way, God is still working out his plans. That's what we see very clearly in this text. No matter the struggle, no matter the season of life, no matter the situation, God is still working out his plans and bringing about his purposes. Nothing can change that. It's a good truth to, to be rooted in. Number three, obedience is commended. 
Like Luke highlights the faithfulness of Zechariah and Elizabeth here in verse six, and he holds them out in a way as a model to encourage us, even in the context of disappointment. They continue to serve, they continue to obey, they continue to pray, even though their circumstances hadn't changed. You know, often we buy the lie that if our circumstances were different, then serving God would be easier. If my circumstance was just different, if, if, I, if I was in this place, or if I had this opportunity, or if I had this circumstance, or if these things lined up this way, it would just be so much easier to serve the Lord, really. It may seem that way. That's not often true. We are called, listen, we are called to faithfulness despite what our circumstances may be in the present. You see that in Zechariah and Elizabeth, don't you? They remained faithful, even though it was hard. Sometimes we will use our unfavorable circumstances as an excuse not to serve the Lord. Or even worse, as a way to manipulate the Lord. Lord, I'll do this for you if you'll do this for me. If we obey, then somehow God is obligated to give us what we desire. Brothers and sisters, he's never obligated. The fact that we breathe yet another breath is a gift of his grace. The fact that he sent his only son into the world to live the life we should have and died the death we deserve so that we can be redeemed is a gift of his grace. Luke just simply holds this couple out as an example. In the midst of disappointment, in the midst of struggle, in the midst of trial, faithfulness is still commended. Number four, long delays in prayer doesn't mean our prayers go unheard or unanswered. Long delays doesn't mean our prayers go unheard or unanswered. Zechariah and Elizabeth had likely prayed hundreds of times We don't know, but likely they had prayed hundreds of times for a child, and as they grew older, I'm sure that request likely diminished by the year as they continued to age. Yet Gabriel arrives all these years later to tell this elderly couple, your prayer has been heard. This is amazing. Now, it's most likely, text doesn't say this, but we're gonna assume the case. They're old now, they're they're advanced in years, it's most likely that Zechariah and Elizabeth hadn't prayed this prayer in a very long time. The day had come and gone when when that prayer now maybe was no longer being uttered. And all these years later, Gabriel shows up on the scene and says, your prayer has been heard. All those years back, God had heard their prayers and only now sends word that he has heard the prayer and that he's going to actually answer it in the way that they desire. Friends, what an encouraging word to us. Listen, the prayers you quit praying 10 years ago, God has heard. And he may still bring to pass. You've forgotten all about it. Prayers we've quit praying so long ago, God has heard, he's recorded, and he may still very much answer. The prayers you pray today will be heard, and even though years and decades may go by, God will respond in the right way at the right moments. 
Don't let the disappointments of this world discourage you from praying. Now, he may not pray, he may not answer your prayer in the way that you desire. He's not obligated to do that. But I think the thing that we take away from this is, is, that, is that don't think that prayer is something that you, you believe that must move the hand of God today. He certainly hears your prayers today, but the answer may not come for a very long time. So brothers and sisters, pray with confidence. Even though you may not see the results immediately, pray with confidence knowing that the Lord hears your prayers. And he doesn't forget them. Like we forget them, we'll pray about something and then forget we even prayed about it. The Lord's marked it down. He doesn't forget. Long delays doesn't mean that our prayers are unheard or unanswered. Number five, unbelief is a serious matter. Unbelief is a serious matter. I'm not talking about, well, this is a serious matter too if you're not believing in the gospel. That's for sure a very serious matter. In fact, if you're here today and you're not a Christian and you're not believing in the gospel, we'd love to have conversation with you about what it means to know and follow after Jesus. About how he is the way, the truth, and the life and that no one comes to the Father except through him. That he is the gift God has given us for our salvation and that only in Jesus Christ can salvation be found. But even as a believer, there is the tendency towards unbelief at times. Zechariah exposes his unbelief when he says to Gabriel, how shall I know this? I mean, he's had an angel show up. I don't know about you, but if I'm terrified of the, of the, of the angel, I don't, maybe I would ask, but he's, well, how shall I know? He kind of pushes back a little bit. I mean, after all, the opportunity for bearing children seemed to be long gone. So he has doubts, and we can appreciate, if you can appreciate doubt, you can appreciate his doubt here, right? And you, you, can, you can relate to that. You'd probably be wondering the same thing, even if you didn't say it out loud. How, how is this going to work? So he doubts whether or not You know, sometimes we find ourselves in a place of actually believing that our problems are bigger than God. And friends, we need to know this. We need to know that underestimating God is just as dangerous as intentionally rebelling against him. You may be serving him, you may be walking with him, and you may yet be doubting him. That's just as dangerous as an outright rejection of him and rebellion against him. Think about the impact of a quarter, a little quarter. You know, you can take a quarter and you can hold it so close to your face that you can actually block out the entire sun. I don't recommend trying it without sunglasses. If you hold a quarter close enough, you can actually take it and block out the entire sun where you're not actually seeing the, the, the sun. Something so massive totally eclipsed by something so small. All because of proximity. Friends, we do the same things with our problems. Sometimes we hold our disappointments and our problems so close that they totally eclipse the power and presence and promise of God. And we begin to doubt. And we begin to question. And we begin to wonder because we're looking at the quarter and not the sun. 
God's teaching us here, and he demonstrates through his temporary judgment of Zechariah that he takes unbelief seriously. He wants to instruct us that his word is a word that can be trusted. His word is a word that can be embraced and believed. Even when the problem seems so big, he wants to teach us that he is so much bigger. He's greater. It's a warning to us as well that we can be a righteous people. We can be an obedient people in holy places carrying out righteous activities and still not believe God. Unbelief is a very sneaky thing. It can show up in our prayers. Often it does. When we pray, and yet we down deep don't believe that God's really going to hear and answer this prayer. You can have a job and not believe it's actually a provision from God. You can do evangelism and not believe that God's actually going to move upon the hearts of people and lead them to faith in Christ. Maybe compared to Zechariah and Elizabeth, you may be older in years and not believe that God can still use you. There's all kinds of things we will often believe. And as we believe these things, it's actually a form of unbelief. Friends, don't let your age, don't let your singleness, don't let your childlessness, don't let your income, don't let your job, don't let your relationships or your lack of relationships be the quarter that you're holding too close to your eyes. Keep trusting God and pouring out your life to serve him with all that he gives you. Even when the circumstances seem to be presenting barriers for us to trust God, keep trusting God. Unbelief is a serious matter. You know, it was 400 years since the last word we had there in Malachi. And guess what? The next season came out. The next episode took place, just as God had said. 400 years later, but it did. A new cast of characters, but the very same promises. Brothers and sisters, it's a glorious reminder to us all that God can be trusted, even in the midst of disappointment. And because he can be trusted, we should keep looking to him. We should keep loving him. And we should keep finding him as our satisfying joy above all else. Let's be faithful to do that because he is a God of his word. Let's believe him and let's follow him. Let's pray. Fathers, we think about these lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth as we think and reflect upon your promises from of old. Lord, it's easy for us now as we look at your word, and it's a gift to us. It's easy to see how your promises have come about. It's easy to see, Lord, how the things you made so clear long ago happened just as you said. 
So Lord, we thank you for giving us your truth. We thank you for the Bible that we can have to know that you are a promise maker and a promise keeper. But Father, the reality is that oftentimes we we aren't looking to those promises, we're looking to the quarter. And that's all we can see at the moment. God, would you remind us that there is a blazing sun behind the eclipse of that quarter and that we would hold fast to your word with our eyes firmly fixed, not upon the quarter, but upon you, walking in hope, walking in confidence, and walking in joy. Father, thank you for giving us life. Thank you, Lord, for the situations and circumstances that we walk through, even even, Lord, the painful ones. Because it's even through those moments of dis- disappointment and struggle that we experience your presence and your promise in ways we never would have otherwise. Father, would you work in us? Would you keep us believing you despite what we may see around us? because we know that you are one who keeps your word. Lord, we thank you for that, and we praise you for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.